Hi, everyone. Hope you guys are enjoying your lunch and your conversation at your tables. I am Diana Pizzoni. I'm with Ted Moodis Associates. Hello. So today's luncheon is about changes and the decision-making um, process in real estate. And we have three dynamic panelist speakers that I would like to introduce to you. So first, we have Bill Bergman. He is the Director of Research at Truth in Accounting, which is a Chicago-based non-for-profit that focuses on educating citizens on the government finance. So that should be um, always very interesting to get the truth in that. Um, he is currently also um, a professor at Loyola, as well as he was formerly with the Federal Reserve and has degrees from the University of Chicago. And Bill will be starting us off with a financial state of the union. As well, we have Pat Sullivan. He is the CFO of Home Chef. And if you're not familiar with Home Chef, you probably will start to be very soon. They were recently, um, Pat Sullivan um, helped uh, co-lead the company's sale to Kroger's this past spring in 2018. So I know I've been seeing a lot of their commercials on uh, TV recently. Uh, Pat is, um, he was formerly with uh, PwC on the accounting side, as well as he has an MBA from Indiana University. And Pat will be representing our millennial viewpoint. And then we also have Kyle Sowers, and Kyle is the CFO of Echo Global Logistics. He's been with them since 2011. He began his career um, in the audit and business advisory practice over at Arthur Anderson. He has uh, graduated from University of Illinois with a degree in accounting, and he also is a certified public accountant. Um, and um, yes, isn't that exciting? Uh, Kyle will be representing our, our Gen X side, so my side of the fence. And we are looking forward to a very exciting um, conversation and maybe same opinions, varying opinions, and I'd like everyone to give them a round of applause. Hi there, nice to be here, a great crowd. My name is Bill Bergman, I'm the Director of Research at Truth and Accounting in Chicago. Uh, we try to educate public uh, citizens about the public purse, trying to safeguard the integrity of the public purse is more or less our mission, helping people understand government finance and government financial reporting with a view to promoting truthful government communi communication about the government's finances. Um, on the side, I teach at Loyola, and I teach money and banking. Um, going back just briefly, I, I grew up in the Chicago area, and it's fun to be here with two CFOs. I also teach on the side at Loyola. I teach finance courses, and I pretend I'm an expert, but it's, it's fun to be with a couple of CFOs to talk about this, especially with their accounting backgrounds. I'm looking forward to hearing their, their reaction on, on this stuff. And speaking of Illinois and Indiana, another quick aside, I, um, I played soccer at U of I back in the day. And uh, we, could, we could play for, uh, with anybody in the Big Ten except for Indiana. Indiana Indiana's soccer team was awesome. Um, and uh, another quick story on Chicago, at least. I was, to date myself, I, I, I was at Gale Sayers' sixth touchdown game at, at Wrigley Field back in the, back in the day. Um, and today, you know, now we have the double doink uh, and or the, you know, Tariq Cohen is my most exciting rookie I've seen since, uh, since Gale Sayers. I, it's been a lot of fun. So let's get cracking. Let's look at the financial state of the union. Um, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have a great message. <laughs> the, uh, I'm afraid it doesn't look good uh, locally, at the state level in Illinois, and, and at the federal level. 
and it's not getting better, despite the fact that we've had the economic recovery and the um, financial market recovery. Even so, the, the pension plans in Illinois and in Chicago are in very, very bad shape. They have lots of assets, but they don't have enough, given the promises. And we'll talk a little bit more about the accounting for those pension plans and, and what it means um, down the road here. Uh, the conditions that we have locally and nationally have, have causes and consequences. The, um, the causes, and we'll get into that, the, uh, the, the ways in which I have a lot of respect for the public choice school of economics, which, you know, in economics, you've, you remember the fundamental assumption of economics is rationality. What is rationality in economics? What are the, what are the, what are the, is it two plus two equals four? And we can get it right all the time? Or what, is, what do they say in economics? Anybody want to take a stab at that? What is rationality in economics? It's, the, the, the assumption is that people tend to try to pursue their self-interest. We all try to make ourselves better off. And, and what happens when you suspend your assumption that government servants are really working for all of us, which in theory they are? What if they're self-interested just like the rest of us? The prediction from the Public Choice School of Economics is that special interest groups will end up dominating policy. And I'm afraid that's what drives the, the deterioration in finances. The politicians have a tendency to kick the can down the road in order to avoid the cost of taxes in the short run and build up debt that has to be paid in the long run. And a longer story short, in Illinois and Chicago, as well as the federal government, I'm afraid that explains um, some of the bad news we're about to, we're about to go over. Um, there are intergenerational consequences for this, as well as regional consequences, and we're going to go over there. However, it's also, it, while it generally sucks, it's also, there is some good news out there. There are some states and places that are very healthy, and we'll look at some of those, too, for some, some lessons and examples. The state government finances, they vary widely across the 50 states, um, but as a general rule, in total, many states have accumulated massive debts beyond, in theory, if, despite the fact that they have balanced budget requirements. 49 of the 50 states advertise that they actually balance their budget. Um, but budget accounting is one thing, and uh, accrual accounting is another. And the cash basis of, of budget accounting is a, is a big problem in enabling the politicians to claim to balance the budget when, in fact, accrual expenses run ahead of accrual revenue, and the, the state and local governments build debt over time that has to be dealt with. So what are we, what are we looking at across the 50 states? Based on how, however you count it, the ambiguity in discount rates is a, a long topic of discussion. But you know we're, we've accumulated roughly over $1.5 trillion in unfunded retirement debt, both pension and retiree health care and other post-employment benefits. This stuff accumulated off the balance sheet for decades until 2015, when they finally had to put, start putting this stuff on the books. And, and the, 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 the convulsion in state government and local government balance sheets is massive. We're going to see that here shortly. Interest expense locally here has been rising in the last decade, despite the fact that long rates have been falling. And the, the, the deterioration is evident in that, in that trend in interest expense. So let's first think about some good news. And here are some states that are actually good examples that tend to be um, responsible guardians of the public purse. Utah is in great shape. Those folks, they got it together. They, they have a respect for the integrity of the commons, the, the public purse in Utah. That's, that's, that's a good thing to learn from, 
for, for our local government here in Chicago. Utah, Tennessee, Idaho, Nebraska, Oregon, Iowa, they, they all tend to be in very good shape relative to the other 50 states. On the flip side, here's the bottom of the barrel. And New Jersey, in our, in our framework, we, we, we construct something called the taxpayer burden, which is our measure of state government fiscal health. Here are the six states that reside at the bottom of the list on that score. Uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, Kentucky, Massachusetts, and Delaware are, are among the worst. And we'll, we'll look at some of the characteristics of these states and what might help explain as well as be a consequence of bad, bad financial condition. Um, here are some of the possible causes, the things that are significantly associated with how bad your financial condition is. Um, the age of the state, older states tend to be in worse shape, which is actually kind of consistent with the Public Choice School of Economics, which um, Mansur Olson is one of my favorite folks from, from that neck of the woods, this economist who grew up in North Dakota and, and developed a theory and the, his book was The Logic of Collective Action and the Rise and Decline of Nations. This fellow had a theory that the longer a government is in, in stable and relatively successful, the more likely it is that special interest groups come and start sucking on the, on the commons at the expense of the general welfare. And that's consistent with this age of the state stuff. Um, unionization, states that are more heavily unionized, especially in the public sector, they tend to be in worse shape. Now, now that raises a curious question. Why are states that are heavily unionized, why haven't they done a good job of funding their pension plans? Something to reflect on. Um, lawyers per capita, states that are more lawyer intensive, tend to be in worse shape financially. And again, this is actually kind of consistent with what Mansur Olson argued. Um, he talked about lawyers and economic growth. He was very careful to say that individual lawyers, per se, are not bad things. In fact, they can be great things. However, when you see lots of lawyers, it's a symptom of other stuff that isn't necessarily healthy for you. And there's a longer story there. Regulation, special interest group forces, um, people trying to carve out a dime on, on the, using the law, not their, their customer service, things like that. Um, Medicaid enrollment, states that are higher on Medicaid um, tend to be uh, in bad shape financially. Gerrymandering, states that are more extensively gerrymandered are in worse shape. The, st the states that aren't are in good shape. Um, Illinois is actually fares poorly on all of these, by the way. <laughs> the timeliness of financial reporting, how soon do they get that stuff out to us? In fact, the state and local governments, are, they tend to be much slower than the private sector in getting the report to the citizens. Those, that reporting is a fundamental job of government that um, we need to respect. And unfortunately, whether or not they really get it out in a timely fashion, the more likely they are to get it out fast, the, the better the shape of the government in general, in looking across the 50 states. Um, we have a story there, too, coming up about the financial state of the union. That was my assigned topic. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the financial report of the US government here shortly. Um, finally, truly balanced budgets. States that keep accrual revenue ahead of accrual expenses ex post are in much better shape than the states that don't. And Illinois, Connecticut, and New Jersey are among the worst miscreants on that score. They're, they're spending more than they take in on an accrual basis, not on a cash basis. Uh, you know, as an aside, we have a, a new we, we have a new finance committee chairman here in Chicago. Uh, I, a couple of years ago, I went up and asked him, how can the city of Chicago claim, and it does claim, to balance its budget according to state law? And that's what they advertise. 
but Chicago's accrual revenue falls short of accrual expenses every year in the last decade. And I asked him, how can you do this? His answer was, well, we borrow money, and that's revenue for the purpose of, of calculating a balanced budget in Chicago. Here are some possible consequences or when we look at the statistics, what's related. If you're in good shape versus bad shape, what are some of the possible consequences? Um, we tend to see significant relationships with migration trends. United Van Lines has a very good survey every year since 1978 looking at interstate migration for their, all their shipments of moves. And you can see a strong relationship. States that are in bad shape financially, like Illinois, ranks, Illinois ranks among the worst in the nation now on that, on that migration study in terms of out-migration. Uh, trust in state government. Uh, Gallup had a few polls a couple of years ago on ranking the 50 states on trust in state government. Where do you think Illinois fared in the last Gallup poll on trust in state government? <laughs> One out of 50. <laughs> 50 was the right answer. But you can see a strong, a strong relationship between this trust in state government and the quality of the finances. Um, the cost of living, there are measures of the real value of a $100 bill in, in every state. And you can see states that are in bad shape financially also impose a higher cost of living on their, on their residents. Um, doctors accepting, this isn't just poor, this isn't just wealthy taxpayers fleeing Illinois either. This is, a, this is affecting the government's ability to service poor people. The, um, the share of doctors accepting new Medicaid patients is significantly related to the financial condition of the state. Um, in Illinois, doctors were being paid low and slow <laughs> compared to other states. And, and they the, the, more doctors in Illinois were refusing to serve new Medicaid patients as a result of the state's financial difficulties. Um, economic growth tends to be higher in, in healthier places. And uh, speaking of real estate, the recovery in housing prices since 2011 is significantly associated with state government financial condition. Here's an example. We have this database that we built called statedatalab.org. Um, it's a separate website from our Truth and Accounting website. This is a, a look at the United Van Lines numbers comparing Illinois and Indiana on the share of outbound moves and total moves. And you can see significant deterioration. Illinois is up there near number, number two, I think, in the nation on the last uh, migration study that they did. But you see the divergence here between Illinois and Indiana only getting wider in recent years. Indiana's in pretty good shape financially, especially compared to what, what we're looking at. Um, let's look at Chicago now, more specifically, not just Illinois. but. Um, the city of Chicago states that it's required to balance its budget every year, and yet accrual accounting shows that their revenue falls short of expenses every year, even though they, quote, balance their budget. This, we don't think, is a truthful mode of communication, and, and it helps to explain the accumulation in debt in the, in the local area. Let's look at Chicago versus Indianapolis versus Detroit on accrual expenses versus accrual, accrual revenue in, in the last uh, decade or so. Here's a look at Indiana. This is all revenue less all expenses on an accrual basis, kind of a bottom line line like net income in, in the private sector. Um, you, they took a hit in 2009, which is reasonable. It was the worst uh, financial crisis and economic crisis in U.S. history. But you've seen a trend towards recovery. Let's put this, let's look at Indianapolis versus Detroit now on the score. And, and start, let's look only until 2013, the year before. Detroit declared bankruptcy. Um, the, they sought bankruptcy relief. Uh, here's Indiana and Detroit. Detroit was consistently spending beyond its revenue in the, in the years before the bankruptcy. Now, the city of Chicago balances its budget, right? It, it, it couldn't possibly be 
What, what does it look like compared to the city of Detroit? <laughs> they spent a billion dollars a year, more than they took in, in the four years before Detroit declared bankruptcy. Let's update this chart to, to current days. <laughs> they threw in the towel on the pension assumptions two years ago, and you can see the massive, um, that, that, that hit the, the expenses that year. But things are, are not getting better. Here's a look at interest expense, Illinois, Indianapolis, Detroit, and, and Chicago. And you can see, in a period of declining interest rates since 2005 to 2017, Chicago's interest expense has, has ballooned from over $300 million a year to over $700 million a year. That's $700 million a year just in interest expense to pay for the borrowing, which some of it is valuable because you're funding big projects, but a lot of this is you're borrowing money to pay for the sins of the past. And that's before we even send a kid to school or, or, or protect them as they, as they, as they, you know, as they're in their neighborhoods. Here it is on a per capita basis. Chicago's a bigger place, but the same story emerges. Interest expense rising much faster than Indianapolis or Detroit. Now, let's, if you got depressed yet, let's look at the financial state of the United States. The financial state of the union, that was my assigned topic. One thing that's, well, anyway, the, first of all, what is the national debt? If you look at just the treasury securities that are outstanding and add them up, you get something close to 20 trillion. But our federal government has similar issues in its accounting, including not counting debt that we believe should count as debt in the federal government. Um, there is one asset that's been growing rapidly in the last decade. The fastest growing asset and the biggest asset now on the books of the federal government is student loans. And whether or not they're going to be as profitable as the government expects is a, a good question. Here's a look at those um, family education loans outstanding. From 2001 to 2013, you see this huge increase right after the financial crisis. Which you know, I just, I'm just I'm very cynical lately. <laughs> the, um, I'm afraid that maybe they're helping families get their kids to school in a period when the economy wasn't that favorable for for getting jobs. And, and so we had this massive increase in in student loans in in this period. Here's the expectations for profitability of these loans for the government up until 2013. And that's when people started, well, why is the government making so much money off of students? That was Elizabeth Warren's line. She was really ranting and raving about the profit. Of, why, is, why is the government profiting off of these students? Does anybody feel, do you feel any tension when you think about these expectations? What are their assumptions in, in assuming that they're actually going to make money on these programs versus down the road, if they forgive a lot of these loans, which is possible, this may not be such a, a good asset for the federal government. Let's turn briefly now, and I'll, I'm looking forward to talking to my, my co-panelists, but the, the off-the-books debt of the United States government, Social Security and Medicare, neither one of the unfunded positions, which are massive in the tens of trillions of dollars in both of these programs, are not on the books as a liability of the federal government. They have their own statements at the end of the financial report of the U.S. government, but they're not counted as debts. Um, the uh, chief actuary of the Social Security Administration, when he was asked why Social Security is not a liability, was pretty explicit. He said, well, the government controls the law and can change the law at any time. Therefore, 
it's not a liability because it's not really an asset for the people that have the, those expectations that are built by the statements that they used to send us in, in our ex expected benefits. This is a picture of the Social Security Administration's new website in 2017 where people can go in and look at their accounts and see their estimated benefits. And here's the message. They have this young dude looking off into the future with sunglasses and um, set yourself free. Open a, my, open a My Social Security account today and rest easy knowing that you're in control of your future. That doesn't square with our government's claim that it's not a debt of the government because the government controls the law and can change it at any time. I, I, I made this presentation to a group of economists once and one of the people in the back of the room said, that's not a deceptive message. He's standing on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> so I wrote up this story, including the, the picture I'm about to show you. And uh, here's, what, here's, what a, here's, here's what we did with that. The, um, and then I wrote this up in late 2017. I'm showing my students this story um, about three, four months later, and they took down the website. We actually made an impact. I think they um, they stopped they stopped having that deceptive message on the front page of the Social Security's um, website. So the federal government has this massive, complex financial set of financial statements. It's it's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's one of the biggest challenges I've ever had in finance or economics is trying to look at the government's finances. Um, but there are lessons from history that in a, in a world with complexity, you can take simple cues sometimes that, that help us understand complex things. And here's one example. Here's AIG before the implosion of American International Group. The, um, the financial report of AIG, the 10K, this is the frequency. These are AIG's credit default swaps, but they're not dollar amounts. They're the number of times AIG put the words credit default swaps in the 10K every year from 2003 once, 2004 twice, 2005 twice, 2006 three times, and then 2007, that 10K came out in early 08 before the AIG implosion, and, and that was a signal. You can take these simple cues and use them, I think, sometimes. Um, this AIG stock price imploded before the accounting value, the equity imploded. And, and, and you can use these simple cues sometimes to try to anticipate future accounting results. Um, so I did that with the federal government's financial report. This is the number of times the, the phrase future generations appears in the financial report of the United States government over the last decade. You see a rising trend in discussions about what the implications of federal government finances are for future generations in the United States. This is also similar, the number of times the word sustain appears in the report. This arrives in the discussion, the financial report of the US government has a frank discussion an increasingly frank discussion about simply the sustainability of the federal government's finances. The implied increases in future debt, as bad as things have been moving, the implied future increases in interest expense and debt at the federal level are so high that they're questioning the sustainability of this stuff. It's, it's something we should all, I think, be aware of and active in trying to address. Speaking of generational implications, I don't know, there's Alfred E. Newman on the left, what me worry. And, is the government concerned about this, though, really? Should it be concerned? Is the government, you know, is it ours or is it the government's? 
and that relates to my, my last set of concerns about the financial report of the U.S. government. The, the balance sheet has roughly $3.5 trillion in reported assets, another $20 trillion more in liabilities, so a negative net position of roughly $20 trillion. But here are the comforting sentences that they introduced the, the balance sheet with. There are, however, other significant resources available to the government beyond the assets presented in these balance sheets. They include the government's capital G, possessive S, sovereign powers to tax, and set monetary policy. I'm not questioning the government's power to tax. It has that power. and also has the power to set monetary policy under our Constitution. What I'm going to question is that the government does not possess the sovereign powers to tax. Who is sovereign in the United States of America? That's, that's what I think. The government is ours. It's, it's not theirs. And this is a document theoretically securing the fidelity and the integrity of the government, and they're reporting to us about its condition. And they're telling us not to worry because they can take our money away and inflate the value of the money. These are sentences, I believe, that should be deleted from the financial report of the U.S. government. Finally, a quick note. Um, what do we know and when do we know it? As I get older, I get more humble about trying to predict things. And sometimes we have enough trouble trying to figure out what happened last month as opposed to what the future holds. But let's, let's think about that, that future in, in light of what we're currently facing in, in, in Washington. We have a government shutdown. I, I called the Treasury Department, asked them when the financial report of the U.S. government was going to be out this year. Last year it came out February 15th. This year, I'm afraid there's going to be a delay. <laughs> the, the, the furlough is affecting the financial reporting, which, not to leap to conclusions, but that implies that financial reporting is a non-essential function of the, of the federal government. It's a <laughs> in recent years, before Mr. Trump was in office, President Obama, in his last two years, the net financial position of the United States government, in our estimation, deteriorated significantly. Um, the word debt wasn't mentioned in the State of the Union address in either of those two years. Um, it appeared once last year when President Trump blamed the increase on the previous administration. But then, in the most recent State of the Union address, it wasn't mentioned again. And the question arises, the Constitution mandates a State of the Union address be given to the American people. And every year they do it, but they do it before the financial report of the U.S. government is available. That's, that comes out after the State of the Union. That's something else that we believe could, could be addressed. So that's, that's, that's enough for now. Thanks for, I'm sorry I took so much time, but I just put this together a couple days ago and probably put too much stuff in there. So let's, 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 start, let's, start, let's start talking. <laughs> Anybody got any questions? I do for you guys. <laughs> Did you know anybody on the soccer team in, in Indiana? <laughs> Probably not when you were there. Okay. Double <laughs> 83, 83 of us when I graduated. Well, we got a logistics company and we got CFOs and significant account experience. It'd be fun to get their reaction to, you know, what is your impression of the quality of financial reporting in our government compared to what, what you've been experienced with? I can go first if you want. So I'm not sure I have a real strong opinion on the government accounting. I suspect it's not the same level of what you'd see at Echo or Home Chef or a lot of other com companies. Um, I, I agree with you on, on the way things are presented. I think the, the characterization of um, 
accrual versus cash basis accounting and the characterization of debt and long-term obligations probably isn't appropriate. I also don't know that, um, I think there's very few Americans who actually rely on that, that report or that information uh, to, make, to make decisions about what they're going to be doing with their lives, which is you know, what financial reporting and investor reports are for people who are going to be looking to make a decision on that, on that business. But it also drives a lot of the rhetoric around uh, decisions that politicians will make and the statements they make to support their, their initiatives. Uh, so I, I, I think I'd agree with a lot of that. I, I'm not quite as um, negative on the economy as, as you are. Um, you know, we, we're, transportation's a fairly good barometer for, for the economy. Uh, we talk to, obviously we talk to a lot of investors as a public company, and there is, there's certainly a lot of worry about the economy being long in the tooth and, uh, and, and being the strongest or longest term recovery we've seen in a long period of time. Um, transportation flows have been very good this past year. There's obviously a lot of uh, benefit from uh, tax stimulus that, that's helped the economy. Um, but even in December, and, and so freight, uh, ground transportation in the U.S. is something like a $760 billion annual uh, economy uh, in, in and of itself. Uh, in December alone, there was something like 7% uh, increase in shipments versus last year. So there's some drive from that tax stimulus. Uh, there is probably some pull forward of freight by companies that were that are trying to get ahead of uh, tariffs that, that may or may not be coming. Um, so that's probably an impact, but we've seen that same level of growth over the last several months as well. Uh, and that's, that's not an echo number, that's a, um, more of a national a national number. Um, so I think that's a, a good indication of an economy that's not uh, not struggling just yet. And I'm not going to be the one to predict whether we're two quarters or two years or five years away from a recession. But certainly, as we go through it, we're going through our 19 planning process. We should be done with it. I'm sure you are by now. Um, but uh, talking to you know top 800 or 1,000 customers uh, and forecasting for the year, they're they're all fairly bullish about what the year's prospects are going to bring. Um, that's not to say I don't agree with all the things you're saying there. But I, I hope I didn't um, overstate. I, I, I'm concerned, but more, you know, the, the financial state of the government is one thing. The U.S. economy is another thing. And, and totally I, agree. that's the... For one thing that's a little bit concerning is that the financial condition of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois are what they are despite the fact that we've had this massive recovery since 2009. And that's what, what, what happens in a downturn to those finances if they're as bad as they are today despite the fact that we've had this recovery. Are we ready for the next recession? For our government, not for the people, not for the economy. How about you? Patrick? I, I don't think I can add anything to that uh, response, but I, I do have a question for you, Bill. Okay. So, you know, as, as dire a picture that you just painted, right, for Chicago in particular, you know, what, what does the economist in you, what, what would the economist in you do if, if, if you had the, you know, the magic wand to, to do what uh, you bid? The first step in truth and accounting's view is to, um, clarify and strengthen the integrity of the public communication about, about the government's finances. Um, we can't let our, our leaders keep telling us things are rosy when they're not. And, and, and holding them to account is the first step I would take to building 
a healthier environment for, for our local governments. As an aside, uh, the economist in me, I just got to bring up too, I'm very happy that Paul Laurent put me in touch with you folks. Um, Paul was the, uh, is the son or was the son of Bob Laurent. When I was at the Federal Reserve, I was an economist and policy analyst there for 13 years. Thank you very much. And Bob Laurent was um, my best friend and mentor, one of the greatest economists I ever knew, Paul's dad. Um, Paul was the one who put me in touch with you guys. Bob Laurent was a great guy. He did his PhD for uh, Milton Friedman. And I still have his dissertation. It's like this thick um, at Chicago. A, a really great person. So th thanks, Paul, if you're out there. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi. Mm -hmm. uh, my name's Marley. I'm in chair construction. I do have a question that often but has to do with each generation. Um, what would you say your biggest advantage and disadvantage is for being in your age? He looks better than yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you want to start or you want me to? Yeah, I mean, so I guess uh, my experience is solely in business, and so I'm not going to be able to add nearly as much when we're talking about kind of uh, the government, but uh, I, I think that our generation is in a good position to, to break the mold and, and is comfortable doing so. Um, and I think that we, uh, we at Home Chef, you know, in particular, we like to be very data-driven um, and let that inform our decision-making process uh, perhaps more than the older generation's propensity to, you know, make decisions based on on hunches, uh, feelings, personal beliefs. Uh, we we like to make the or let the data do the talking. And um, if that's, you know, one of the benefits of of being a, a startup is that uh, we have a lot of risk takers, and so they're comfortable. Um, if if uh, people are saying, hey, you guys should should turn left, um, but the data says, actually, you know, a right turn is the best turn, uh, we're comfortable, our team is comfortable making those decisions. I think those are, those are all fair points, and I, I agree that there's a disadvantage to being, uh, having a lot of experience and, and knowing things that work well and don't work well, or, or what has worked well for you. So... Um, and, and I also think that the size and maturity of the company leads you to more conservatism, uh, potentially, because you, not, not that you have more at stake, but you've, um, things have worked for you, so you can, uh, you can kind of set your course. So I, I totally agree that there's, um, you're drawing from your experiences uh, more often than you would be data. I think Echo's fairly technology forward, and we have a data science department that drives a lot of our decisions. Um, so we we're, we are embracing that, um, but I think I think that is a, a drawback. I think a another advantage of being younger younger generation is um, the growing up with technology and technology change, understanding how people react to that or or don't care to react to it, um, and probably having a better perspective on that. Um, I do think there's a ton of advantages to experience and being through through wars. Uh, I've been through good cycles and bad cycles, but I've been through uh, close to bankruptcy. I've been through capital raises that where we've spent it all in a dot-com bust. I've been, 
I'm sure I've been through more lawsuits than Pat has. Not, I'm not sure what that says exactly. Uh, but you know, in, whether it's um, negotiating transactions, um, whether it's hiring practices, hiring issues, employment issues, I think there's, there's advantages to, to experience as well. Uh, but you, you got to press yourself to stay flexible and fresh because uh, you don't have that, that advantage that he was talking about. For, for young people, I think the advances in information technology and the management of information, we've made such great strides. And young people are, I'm afraid, better at a lot of that stuff than I am. I, I, my daughters are in college now. They came back from college, and all of a sudden I learned like 10 things that I didn't know about technology when they came back. And, in, in the long run, the, the more efficient management and communication of information that's in the information age is something that's definitely bullish for young people in the long run. And they can be leaders right away in, in that area. Hey, guys, I have a question. So hearing everything that Bill had to say from the analytical financial standpoint of what the government is like in Chicago, you both have headquarters in Chicago, older, newer. And then hearing how great Indiana is, why Chicago? Why not 15 miles away where that state is better? What drove your decision to stay in Chicago land area? There you go. So we've got, I, I might mention this, we've got 2,600 people across the U.S. We've got about 1,600 people here at our headquarters in Chicago. Um, we, we hire a lot of people each year. We've been a growth company since inception in 06. Um, we have decent turnover in a, in a sales force that needs to be replenished, and we continue to add people. And there's just not, there's not a way for us to do that at our scale. Um, maybe if we went to Indy, we could do it. We're not going to do it in Maryville or Gary. Um, and once you have an installed workforce, it's also very difficult to, to move them in a situation like that. I think we, we would have trouble. We looked, when we looked to expand our uh, our space, we looked out in the suburbs as well, and it, it while it could have worked space-wise, it wasn't going to work with our, our people. We ultimately determined that. It's a, it's a relatively young workforce, um, and it, we just could not have transitioned. Starting something new, maybe it would be possible, um, but I, I think we would have a, um, a much harder time with technology uh, hires and retention out in the suburbs than we, we are here. I know that's not, that's not a new concept for the folks in this room, but um, it, I think we have to be here with as many technology professionals as we, as we want and need. Yeah, very similar answer. Uh, so we were founded here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, Pat Vitelic started the business five years ago uh, out of his apartment in River North. Um, you know, three, three years ago, we were 30 people uh, hold up in 5,000 square feet in River North. Um, and, you know, since then, we've, we've grown tremendously. We're planning to continue to grow. And the labor market is already really tight. And uh, to attract the, the type of professionals that, that we need, you know, obviously we're, we're going to have to draw in a, in a major metropolitan area like Chicago. Um, you know, perhaps uh, a related kind of way to spin the question is, you know, you were, you were just acquired by a company who's based in Cincinnati. Why, why aren't you guys moving to, to Cincinnati? And, and again, it, it really comes down to the access to 
new talent. I mean, uh, some of the big corporations, Kroger, P&G, uh, have essentially already tapped out the Cincinnati market, and, and they're now trying to find tech centers like Portland, uh, Chicago, um, and uh, uh, Charlotte uh, to, to tap into some of those uh, centers where there's a big draw from, from the surrounding universities. Um, and, and even you know, Indianapolis would, would never present uh, that opportunity. And again, perhaps to speak to the, um, you know, how we're a little bit maybe naive as it, as it relates to the impact that, that the government's financials can have on us. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't really weigh in to the, uh, to the analysis. Um, for us, the most important thing is attracting and retaining talent. One other thing that I would add that I'm, I'm sure is obvious, but probably not always spoken, is you, to change a venue for a corporate headquarters, you've got to have a leadership team that is committed and willing to do it. Or, and you wouldn't find our leadership team saying, hey, let's move to Indiana, um, even if it was economically beneficial. Um, so you, you risk losing, losing key leaders. And it's um, the people, there, there are people who drive the decisions and have a very vested interest at the top of organizations who are going to make that decision and um, set echo aside. If it doesn't work for them, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. Diana, I think your question was good for the audience. I'm sure a lot of people in our audience, too, are, are thinking about this. Are there any strong opinions about that? When you look at Chicago, how important is the, the current tax environment and or the possible future tax environment in your own in your own, anybody have any strong opinions on that? You guys got to be thinking about this stuff. Is real estate, is the government finances, is that important for real estate in the city of Chicago? I would just offer, I don't know if we really know yet, I'll give an example, two examples, right? Just this year, uh, buildings, real estate buildings got their triangle reassessments that are going to start getting. Most real estate taxes are passed through on a cash basis, right, to corporate tenants. So just this year, they're going to start getting sticker shock and black 2018 reassessment, right? So I don't think you know yet. Uh, similarly with real estate taxes, at least in the city of Chicago for residences, just, you know, you have a reassessment, people are again just getting hit with it. I don't think people really know and appreciate how, how expensive it's going to get. What I think what you are seeing is uh, home price appreciation in Chicago land tailed off far before, way before anybody else did. And I think that's part of the manifestation where you have people and thinking about investing in a home here or elsewhere, how big the home to buy, they have to either leave or just buy less of home. So I think that's what you're probably seeing it now. Over the next couple of years, I think we'll see that materialize more. And I think the final point, one of the most interesting articles that I've seen on the subject is when the Chicago Fed, those three guys at the Chicago Fed came up with last, you know, April, May, about talking about what it would take to plug, plug just the Illinois deficit, which was, uh, it was I think it was a 40% increase in real estate taxes, years for every homeowner. That's what we're facing. And that's just for Illinois, and that's just for the, for the pension liability, not for some of these other things, right? Mm -hmm. So, too soon to know how people are really going to react. Because we haven't had, that's maybe why we got to where we are. We didn't have anything to react to. Um, in theory, Truth and Accounting is a nonpartisan organization. We don't we have our own ideas and stuff, but um, one of the consequences, the Chicago and Illinois got to where they were by not taxing enough. They were, they were spending money and accruing expenses that were bought with future consequences. 
And had the, had the taxes been higher to begin with, we'd be in better shape today, but we'd also maybe have a, a reaction to the policies that led to that spending. And we, that, the, fact that, the fact that taxes were lower than they should have been helped the problem get worse and worse. Go ahead. I have a, I have a question for uh, Bill. Um, I'm going to tease you and say we're actually, you didn't actually depress the room because we've heard this message over and over for the last decade and it has not changed. Um, I'm surprised you didn't mention states that have legalized marijuana. Um, is that because there are some federal irregularities that they can't um, put it on the books? Or I thought those states were kind of cash heavy. Um, is that the answer for Illinois? I know that they're talking about uh, the casino and legalizing it here. Is, would that help us? Um, I think it, it, will, it would help us, and it will help us. But the, the, the amount of help it just pales in comparison to what we're facing. The dollar amounts, especially when you consider that that won't necessarily be incremental revenue. It may come at the expense of other stuff. More marijuana, maybe people don't drink as much beer. On the other hand, maybe people drink more beer. Who knows? But it, 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 it's not going to be a big dollar amount compared to what we're facing. The dollar amounts are staggering. And but no, everyone will feel better. <laughs> <laughs> or more confused and lazy. <laughs> I think you also have to think about where would the politicians spend those dollars, right? Would they dedicate that money to being more fiscally responsible, or would they proliferate the current situation where it's kind of, let's brush what we can under the rug, and let's highlight you know, the, 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 the flashy things that we want to highlight. So um, I think it's, from my perspective, and I don't pretend to be very educated on the topic, um, it's a little bit of a leap to believe that more responsible decisions will get made just because there's more tax revenue. You raise another interesting question with that question, and that's to what extent some people believe perhaps that you should think about the power to tax as an asset or resource of the government, should we capitalize the expected future tax revenue into the city of Chicago's balance sheet or not? And some people actually believe that. We're not, we're not in that neck of the woods. Um, companies don't get to capitalize future sales revenues, and, and local governments shouldn't be able to capitalize their, their expected tax revenue either. People can move, and they are moving. People are mobile. Governments have customers. They're called citizens and taxpayers. Anybody else? Go ahead. I've got a question for Kyle. Um, you're a logistics company. Um, what are you guys planning for in terms of the development and maturation of uh, autonomous transportation and how is it going to affect your industry? I, I think I heard a statistic that one in five jobs in our economy involves driving something. So that could be a big disruption that could be coming down the pipeline that could lead to the next uh, you know, economic slide. So how are you guys planning for that? And when do you see that technology really developing? Yeah, so I'd say the, the positive side of that is we don't own any trucks or have truck drivers. Uh, we're a third party, so we're, we're matchmaking with technology and people between empty space on trucks and people who need to move product. But I have fairly strong opinions on it. I think it's a long ways away before autonomous trucks have any meaningful impact on, on the economy. I think there's... There's opportunities for use um, at ports, rail yards, where there's less um, risk to the public. Um, there's 
There have been platooning um, experiments that have been done in, in other countries and some actually here in the U.S. where you've got a lead truck and, and no drivers and trucks behind. Uh, but I think that all it takes is one, one accident. First of all, it, it's going to be hard to get legislators to agree that that's safer for our roads and that it's good for jobs in the U.S. Um, so I don't think it'll get too far too quickly. Um, but then beyond that, I think it, all it takes is one 80,000-pound uh, vehicle smashing into uh, you know, a station wagon with family or, or a bus, school bus or something like that before people reverse course. So I, I, I think it has a place, and I think it will, um, it will be important down the road, but I think it's a long ways away. And I think, I think cybersecurity is another big, big issue. If you have 200,000 trucks on the road that are self-driving, uh, that's a pretty good target for someone who could uh, get into the, the, the software and direct these, these 80 or 100,000 pound missiles down the, down the road. What's that? Or steal the cargo. Yeah, or steal the cargo. Yeah, that's a, that's a real issue as well. Kyle's answer um, was pretty interesting in highlighting the fact, you know, he, he, he called himself a matchmaker in terms of contribution. Like the tender of trucks? Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> Can we delete that from the podcast? <laughs> Both of these guys, the, where do you think used cars are in GDP, in the national economic accounts? Where do you, used car sales are not in GDP, but something else is. Used car dealer profits are counted as GDP, and that helps to reflect the contribution of intermediaries to economic growth, matchmakers, people that put buyers and sellers together. And, and that's a growing area in general, distribution and logistics and the connection of consumers to manufacturers, developing more efficient matchmaking is, is a, you know, a rosy and I think a valuable thing down the road, especially with information technology. Any other thoughts? All right, well, thanks, everybody. It was great to, great to meet with you.